Hey, Dame. What's good? You know, I was curious. We've been home for a minute now recording remotely. And, you know, I just feel like I've had so much more time on my hands. I've been listening to more music, watching more shows, engaging with more podcasts. And I was curious, have you listened to any podcasts recently? Nope. Still no. I, I make this and I watch things and I love all you podcast listeners because you make this work possible. <laughs> but all you other podcasters, don't ask me. I have not heard your podcast. I'm really sorry. It is no hard feelings. I don't listen to my own. <laughs> if you were... If I were though, to a podcast. I know where I would go. Where would you go? I'm going to check out Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Yeah, I love independence. I love free things. This sounds like where I'm going to have to go uh, step into this game of podcast listening podcast for the people get it for free on the app store education hello hey what's up this is erico you know what it is erico i'm kiss i'm damon and what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative how are you dame man i'm out here living and working i'm, I'm grateful for the world it's treating me all right how you doing I'm good. I'm uh, I'm in my new apartment. This is our first recording in the new clothes closet. Hey. Uh, it is an illustrious closet. After sitting in that <laughs> other one for all those months, I like now we're, we're looking like taller vaulted ceilings, mm-hmm. better lighting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the Rolls-Royce of DIY recording <laughs> spaces, I would say. <laughs> um and we are excited to continue our education suite today. Real quick, a couple things before we get to our wonderful guest. Uh, first off, this past week on Indigenous Peoples Day, we did a little fundraising match on our Instagram for Shy Nations Youth Council. Uh, we said if you joined Ergo in supporting their work with a redistribution of some money, we would shout you out on the show. So shout out to Tori Larson, shout out to Dana Stamos, shout out to Naomi Borowski, shout out to Emma Soglin, shout out to Joe Engelman, shout out to the one and only chicago freedom school y'all are the best thanks for supporting the great work of shy nations youth council also make sure you subscribe comment rate and review ergo on apple Podcasts, anywhere else you listen to your pods and follow us at ergo radio if you're not already okay let's get to our guest the one and only s.a smythe SA was generous enough to grace us with their brilliance. We talked in depth about the Cops Off Campus UC campaign um, and all the work that academics and students and organizers are doing throughout the state of California um, to not only uh, demilitarize and bring an abolitionist decarceral campaign to the university, but to also question what university and academia and, you know, formal schooling is itself. Yeah. I mean, part of what's been so fun about these education suites is they've become a site of learning for me around questions that I already had and things that I just hadn't thought of at all. So there was so much that essay brought to the conversation around the way that policing on campus sprung up in response to dissent on campus in the 60s and how the effort to quash dissent has been at the center of the investment in policing both on and off campuses across the country. And we got to geek out on some Italy shit for a little while. Um, A lot of their work 
centers around blackness in the Mediterranean, uh, both historically and in this moment. And how do we get past ideas of national borders? You know, it, it was maybe a little more expansive than some of the other conversations in this suite. We talked more about what's in their work as opposed to just the work uh, of the campaign. But it was super interesting stuff to me that I feel like I learned a lot from. Yeah, really, really dynamic and powerful. I was super excited to actually get into those conversations about the nation state because that's a really like dense concept. Uh, you really need someone who's living or embodying or experiencing the world um, in some unique ways to really be able to get into the depths of that. Uh, and so as someone who's trying to figure out my own relationship to statehood and nationality, uh, I really appreciate that as naming the world and therefore a borderless world as a true side of education. Damon's just been looking for someone to talk about the nation state with, and I've tried, <laughs> but you know, everyone has their limits. <laughs> yeah, I need a sparring partner. S.A. <laughs> uh, Smythe is a poet, translator, and transdisciplinary scholar whose research is focused on Black Italian, migrant, and post-colonial literature, and other cultural responses to colonialism, racial capitalism, and other relational aspects of dispossession and inequality. Damn, this is a long-ass sentence, which you're going to get your fair fill of in the interview. <laughs> Stemming from citizenship, borders, and belonging in the wake of the self-initiated crises of migration across Europe, East Africa, and the Mediterranean. They're a professor at UCLA, one of the organizers behind the Cops Off Campus campaign, and you can find info about all the myriad things that they talk about in the show notes for this episode. And it certainly was a myriad. This is this is an official myriad for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's let's get into the weeds, into the work, and into the classroom with S. A. Smythe. Oh yeah. We are smack dab in the midst in the weeds, in the exciting times of our education suite. And we have a very special guest on the line with us today. We are so excited to be learning from, talking with, S.A. Smythe is here. Shout out to the, the reggae air horn sounds. Those are my favorite. <laughs> Handmade, artisanal yeah. air horn sounds here <laughs> on Airgo. Um so first of all, thank you for being here. Uh, second of all, let's let's start where we start every conversation. Uh, in this time, this moment, this season, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Ooh, that is a good, uh -huh. <laughs> that's a really good question. First thought, best thought, I have to say with suspicion, right? Because <laughs> the current world order uh, is one that I'm, you know, seeking to change in community. So the way that I regard it is not um, in any way open. But um, that's, I guess, like the world writ large, right? California is dealing with compounding and competing crises and apocalypses, ecological, racial, um, viral, and otherwise. So uh, yeah, I, I sort of <laughs> regard this suspiciously like this cannot be the world. There is another one, right? <laughs> <laughs> earthquakes of 4.5 to 7.1 on a regular basis like I didn't sign up for this sci-fi film um so that's how I regard it um so how I treat the world I want to I guess mobilize a different kind of world which is the one of the, the community um especially around the organizing that I've been doing so I want to say um it's been treating me kind of tenderly but we're collectively suspicious and set about to change the other world mm. I love collectively suspicious. That's that's yeah, nah, beautiful. Nah, that's that's right on point. So in this education suite that we're in, what is the world teaching you right now, 
particularly, you know, you named all those overlapping crises, but it doesn't have to be crisis and apocalypse focused, uh, but it's certainly welcome. <laughs> but yeah, what's, what's the world teaching you right now? Yeah, um, I'm going to say the word by not saying it and then try to never say it again. But, you know, we're always hearing about how it's unprecedented, which I think is a misnomer <laughs> and a misrecognition of the, the true crisis at hand, which is one of white supremacist racial capitalism. Um, but I'm learning to learn things, right? Like we, in the, in the struggle and in general, need to, I think, be more adaptable. You know, thinking about all the people. So Virgo season just passed. I'm a Virgo. And uh, a lot of the things that get ascribed onto the astrology is like meticulous, rigorous, unchanging. And I'm like, same, great, let's do it. You know, spreadsheets, <laughs> charts, signs, always on time, five minutes early. Um, and so for me in this moment, when things are, you know, the pace is shifting, um, on the one hand, and and for the worse, uh, in, in a significant sense, right, things are ramping up. I don't know that in March I thought that I would be spending whole seven, eight, nine hour shifts on Zoom. I thought we would just maybe collectively try to agree to just have a little time out. Um, and so what I'm learning is that racial capitalism knows no bounds, right? That's one of those things we intellectually know. But really in a time such as this, when things were just shutting down and not able to move forward, I thought... We can just collectively, let's just reassess. Um, and that has not happened. Yeah. So it will not happen unless we <laughs> yeah. make it happen. So I guess it's a, a yeah, learning yeah. re-remembering or something like that. Mm. Yeah, there there was a moment where I was like, oh, it's more obvious now, right? Like the the, the physical toll, the 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 death, right? Like they, we are counting bodies and lives that are being lost like a, a ticker. And to see that there was nothing but like the continuation of capitalist logic. I don't know. It was a re-remembering of like, yeah, we have to do it. It's never just going to like, Oh, I got it. You know, there's no eureka moment for, for the beneficiaries of oppression, but yeah, there was like a two week period where I was like, Oh, it's all going to be a little bit easier now to explain it mm -hmm. because it's so visible. And that's not the truth. No, I mean, it's seven months <laughs> in. Yeah, seven months in, there's no, um, in the US anyway, there's no um, rent freeze or all of these things. But also, and this is not to, you know, blame the victim, but there has been no strike, right? You would have thought, you know, in the last seven months, <laughs> we would have been able to sort of think about mobilizing, but there is just so much going on and we got to, um, we got to, I don't know, study, prepare, struggle, do do the usual. Yeah. But um, I definitely am learning how to sort of to do that and then also not let my desire for resistance and even revolution um, to deplete me as a human person, right? This moment has also taught mm. me that because we're also talking about um, health pandemic. That's the overarching reminder. You run yourself ragged. It's not like that equals COVID or anything, but it does mean that you have to be attuned to your body to continue doing the work you think you're set out to do. Well, and the whole project is in service of like collectives being able to live full, healthful, generous, collective, beautiful lives. Yeah. And so if you can't ground the work in that, that's what the work is toward, <laughs> among other things. Um, so let, let's, let's jump into the um, the mobilization that you have been involved in. Uh, let's start with this campaign. Um, one, like, what's the the quote, like, two sentence thing that you give when someone's like, "Oh, what's what's going on here?" But then also, <laughs> what does it mean to you? What what are you learning? What's emerging for you as this work's going on? Yeah, great question. So, uh, the campaign you're talking about is the Cops Off Campus campaign, which is 
University of California. I gotta say UC because y'all are, you know, the Chicago supremacy. Yeah. That's a that's a foot Which here. They should get those so. off campus as well. They are. So they it, absolutely it, it, are. It transfers. Yeah. They will. No, in Chicago, there's the Care Not Cops, which we are totally in solidarity mm-hmm. with. Um, but the Cops Off Campus Coalition consists of University of California, most of the Cal State universities, system impacted folks, university afflicted folks. Um, union membership and others who are all working together to get cops off of all campuses, higher education um, in California by September 2021. So I, I would really love as we are, uh, you know, a show that has some 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 place centering and, and you know, Chicago is our home. Uh, I've been connected to the Care Not Cops campaign since, since it launched. I would love to kind of pull out some of these connections because I feel like this is a national and global movement that's happening in a, a true grassroots fashion. Um, and so the, the idea of a statewide system uh, versus one campus system that is this private force, that's the second largest private force in like the world or the Western Hemisphere, I forget the, the stat. Uh, but h- how does the difference work in a public state system uh, as opposed to what would look like a more just singular like campus fight? Well, <clears throat> it's a lot more work <laughs> for me just imagining <laughs> it, right? Having to communicate across 10, 10 times the amount of people with the same population of students and of faculty per campus as any one campus. Um, but um, what I'd rather speak to, because I don't know, you know those stats and I have not been in a, a sure. one campus institution, right? In the US, I've studied um, at University of California um, system. You know, I've been hustling my way through like five of the 10 UCs at this point in terms of student, fellow, postdoc, um, and now uh, assistant professor. Um, but before that, okay. when I was in New York, it was in the City University of New York system, the Graduate Center, right? So those are both two massive public systems. I don't know no better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> word, word, word. Uh, but uh, what I do want to speak to, though, is the, the notion of like private and privatization. I don't have the stats here. Um, there's something like 15% Black student population um, and the relation between the students and the South Side area and the rate of policing is completely exorbitant, right? And and also undifferentiated, right? The way that those students experience uh, policing, the way that South Side residents experience policing. And there's a similar dynamic um, on all their 10 UC, University of California campuses. Uh, and the one I'm at is um, LA, UCLA. And so, you know, that's why we also say in the coalition that it's also about university afflicted communities, right? Because what the University of California has done is, in fact, they've, they've made us organized statewide, right? Who controls the fact that there are police on our campuses is the University of California Office of the President, UCOP, and the Regents, which is the board running all 10 campuses. They've also, though, authorized UCPD in all those campuses, right? And then simultaneously made it so that they can get between campus to campus, have effectively made uh, the UCPD, uh, University of California Police Department, a state force, right? So it's UCPD, Mm -hmm. ICE, and California Highway Patrol who run the state, mm-hmm. right? So um, th- the difference is that, right? I don't see, I don't know, because the private um, police force that you, Chicago PD, can just be traipsing around other parts of Illinois saying, well, this is UC property, so let's go, <laughs> right? Like we can sort of yeah. run it that way. There's jurisdictional issues that by nature of the size of the UC, I'm just going to say UC and then say Chicago, the UC system, <laughs> Um, That's a good little has, like a uh, map legend. <laughs> thank <do> you. <laughs> um, has given them this sort of free reign. The second thing 
the University of California, it's the largest land grant institution um, in the U.S. Mm. Um, the mm. University of California property, though, spreads out so that you could be minding your business in the middle of downtown L.A. and there could be a UC Health building, which is UC property, which gives the police jurisdiction to be in that space, even though you're downtown mm. and you believe that you're off campus. The way that the jurisdiction has operated has meant that we have to sort of be more in concert, but high, highly focused on our local geographies, local terrain. Um, and that's something that's been both a challenge and rewarding, right? Because it also requires us then to sort of uh, mobilize and organize with and in relation to local communities who know they're minding their business. They have nothing to do with any university of any California and University of California, you know, it's like the Plymouth Rock scenario, right? University of California lands on them. And so that's something that, um, that's been a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the academy in relation to policing. Um, You were kind enough to send over before we got on uh, a collective statement put out by the campaign. And one of the things that did really well was map out the relationship between uh, policing on campus happening simultaneously with the changes of what a campus was and its purpose uh, and who was allowed in that space. Um, so maybe if you could just give a little bit of context on when this kind of deputization and militarization of campuses happened um, and, and what are some of the driving forces in that continued explosion um, beyond just like the increasing hyper-policing and militarization of our every space. Yeah, the statement of Black solidarity um, for cops off of every campus um, was drafted by myself, Nick Mitchell, um, and I'm going to return to Nick's name, Sarah Haley and Shauna Redman. So Nick does incredible work, uh, is effectively a historian of policing um, in relation to the university. Um, I think his book that's coming out, um, I'm going to make him listen to this now, um, is Disciplinary (laughs) Matters. It talks about... What up, Nick? uh, (laughs) Yes. Um, (laughs) This is fantastic. It's like uh, you call somebody, like NPR leaves voicemails, you know, wait, wait, don't tell me. They leave. Uh Exactly. (laughs) It was perfect. Um, But yeah, so uh, the book that he's got coming out with Duke soon um uh you know he really talks about the relationship between like black studies departments women's studies departments and and the state and also um has been a historian of policing in relation to universities um campus police um through that through that same metric Right. And so Nick um, did a significant amount of research um, so that we could sort of track the devaluation of black life while simultaneously, again, university inflicted people, not just those who are faculty or students. Right. But the way that the university, the academic industrial complex sort of draws in, extracts, exploits black labor while simultaneously devaluing actual black people um, on its campuses. Mm. And so. The statement was, you know, about that. So when we talk about, you know, uh, abolishing the police or policing on campus, it's also in terms of this kind of devaluation of Black life and Black people. Nick, dropping some numbers, giving us the history, talks to us about how uh, in 1965-66, Ronald Reagan someone's president then, was running a a gubernatorial campaign um, because he was the governor of California, right? He was also Mm -hmm. the governor um, that led to Angela Davis's firing when she was a lecturer at UCLA, right? So these these moments are definitely intertwined. And effectively, in the statement and and beyond, um, was talking about how it wasn't just no Blacks, right? It wasn't just like to be racist, it is white supremacist, but it was specifically about targeting dissent, 
right? Blacks mm. who are mobilizing with the left, leftist campaigns, poor people, workers who are sort of um, working in schools at universities and we're sort of continuing to build movements, right? It's the 60s. We can vaguely yeah. right. recall. Ways, that's where the Panthers, you know, were able to incubate. Right. And so uh, it was happening in relation to universities. And so I'm going to read this quote from the statement um, where Reagan says that um, those on UC campuses to agitate and not to study might think twice before they pay tuition. They might think twice how much they want to pay to carry a picket sign. This is the moment that we see sort of the convergence of trying to denounce and and squash the left, Black-led leftist movements, um, with capitalism, right? Like that's that being the response to that, because universities were meant to be free, um, and they were for quite some time. So we don't just see um, the sort of hyper-policing. First, it comes through the financialization and rendering a for-profit model of the university, right? To keep out mm-hmm. Black people, Latinx people, Indigenous people, poor people in general. Um, and then also sees to secure that financial line, right? The advent and the increasing of police presence on those campuses. Again, that statement, um, which I, I will, you know, y'all have and I hope could link, um, is also really useful because it just sort of ties that together um, really beautifully, right? It shows that as tuition increase, it's not, not even a one-to-one, it's even more so, right? Tuition increased almost 500%, campus police increased by almost 400%. We understand that the, what the police are there to protect and the extension of power um, for profit and capital and not education, which is what we actually need to produce, right, at a public institution. What's exciting about the Cops Off Campus campaign and this historicization that was offered um, and that was drafted in this statement and many other um, of our resources is that what we imagine the university, when we say public university, right, so the kind of institution that we want, not just the abolition university in terms of no campus police, but a true, tried and true public university, public in terms of like reparative public goods, has actually never been done before, right? It's not like we're returning Mm. to a public institution. We've actually never had one. UChicago is private, but the way that University of California is operating is also privatized, right? And privatizable. And so that is um, also what we say when we say we want campus, we're going to get the police off of our campuses by September 21. We also mean a transformation of these kinds of um, modes of engagement. Not that I evaluate the validity of a campaign based on how hot the signatories are and how, <laughs> how many banging great names you got on there, but this shit is hot. Um, but for, Straight for fire. you coming into this work, what was your entry work into this campaign? Um, and had you, you know, coming up within different spaces in the academy, been active on campuses in various ways before that this felt like a continuation for Yeah. So, you know, I definitely came up in the University of California system, right? Like I was saying before, um, I've been hustling my way. I've made it through, I think, five of the 10 UCs. I started as a research fellow at Berkeley, then went to do my PhD in history consciousness, where Angela Davis taught um, at UC Santa Cruz. Then I think I went to Santa Barbara for a Black Studies Fellowship, UC Irvine for a postdoc, and now I work at UCLA, right? So that's really just just hustling my way down <laughs> down the line. And also that means, you know, being at these different ranks, right? Being a student, being a worker, being a student worker um, has really made it so that <laughs> we can see sort of the state of things, right? Obviously, so the campuses are very much different and distinct, but when you're a Black faculty, when you're a Black student, when you're a Black postdoc, um, it's really you and the handful of people around you, right? So you also get to know your colleagues, 
specifically as a graduate student, I think that's where I was sort of mobilized into this work. And again, shout out to Nick, because Nick and I went to grad school together. Um, Or rather, when Nick was leaving History of Consciousness, I came in. And Nick was very, very useful in sort of saying, well, here are the things that you need to look out for, or here's what's going to go down. Mm. And I was, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and was like, no, I got you this. You need that like, person. Got- oh, that, like, <laughs> welcome, unpack your, your desk, and like, here's the people to avoid, and here's the people to talk to. I think it's what you should, you Chicago does, right? I think there's like a disorientation guide that I've seen from the Care Not Cops folks, <laughs> and it really was that. Mm-hmm. Granted, um, I'm stubborn as hell, and I ignored a significant part of it, but then when Nick left... It was like when I did for orientation, mm-hmm, regular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like uh-huh oh it's a go. yeah 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 just definitely going with it like i hear some of what you're saying but like i'm gonna be different because i'm efficient and i can organize and i'm gonna make change we already heard about those spreadsheets we know i just love a spreadsheet you might not know this but i'm me yeah <laughs> <laughs> this episode goes out to spreadsheets <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're trying to we're trying to get that google suite money oh man that's the day <laughs> I really, yeah. the day that that goes down or, you know, you know, especially because oh of God. Google in San Francisco, which is like a pox on that entire region um, and all of Ohlone lands, really. Um, when that goes down, it really is over for me, you know, because I, well, that's, I. That's library. That's library of Alexandria times like 50 is is <laughs> Google suite going down. Let me just oh um, take a pause and hit save real quick no on something. Don't worry about it. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> So it was stepping into that space in the graduate work that kind of got you active in a different way? Working with Nick, um, working with the students, really. Right, because Angela had just retired and then was on like a three-year retainer. Um, so Angela's partner was my um, um, dissertation advisor, Gina Dent, and also um, on, on Nick's committee as well. But when Angela retired, Gina Dent became the only Black woman with tenure in the humanities and social sciences. Uh in that same vein, what they did, what the university did was go to the like next rung of blacks, right? You ask for your top tier headliner, that person's not available, you go down your list, right? Uh, until you get, I don't know, a Flavor Flav type. And that one being me. <laughs> Shots fired at Flavor Flav. Sorry, I just I saw I saw something the other day <laughs> on the internet. He was the first person they went to for that show. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> they pitched that show to five inaccurate people first. Shots. <laughs> Wow, just alienating people. I'm trying to bring y'all into the cause, but um, That's the flavor right. of love fans, flavor flav heads. Uh, <laughs> it's actually a really big Venn diagram <laughs> of people who are on the fence about abolition mm-hmm. and flavor flav fans. I feel like that's really yeah. just circling each other. No, I know. I, I'm, I'm, I'll do better. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so what what wound up happening was that, right? All of a sudden, which again, Chad Nick warns me about, but was like, you know, the chancellor was reaching out saying, oh, would you be on this diversity council? Oh, would you be on this thing? So my CV from a grad student looks like a tenure faculty in terms of race, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion work, right? I was on search committees, like, for diversity officer. Like, it was really absurd. Uh, graduate student um, association, um, presidential boards, um, solidarity officer, diversity officer, all of these sorts of things. And that was really eye-opening, right? And then at a certain point, Nick returned for a job. Nick now works there in feminist studies at, at UC Santa Cruz. So right at the moment, 
Um, I was in my third or fourth year and burnt out, haggard, just like, I don't know, smoking in a dive bar, just like with my hand on my head and the cigarette just like trailing out. Just like, how did I get here? Mm -hmm. What have I done? When at that moment, almost cinematically, right? Because Nick was like, so did you watch out for the things? Basically, we had like a coming together heart to heart. And then Nick does what Nick does best in terms of historicizing, right? The CV looked the same uh, on Nick's um, document, right? And so Mm. that because we had been here before, Nick had been here before I was experiencing at that time to help me historicize there are people before Nick and people after me who would do the exact same thing unless we mobilize for something otherwise. And that the institution is counting on that, right? right? And the and the lack of person-to-person memory yeah. and expertise in that disposability. Which is so difficult to have. How are you going to have historical memory when you you're, you know keep getting Black people out the paint? It's impossible. Right. And so it continues to be a, a moment of awakening for me, right? Similar to how it helped inform my sort of transnational politics and politics around Black solidarity, because that, when I was in grad school at that same time doing this kind of work, was the the launch of the Black Lives Matter movement in the Bay. I saw the sort of convergence of public education, the hyper-policing of Black people in relation to the increase of tuition. For me, it was also similar to the acknowledgement that California without Prop 209 no longer has affirmative action, and was also talking Mm -hmm. about sort of counting Black people. Now, I'm not from California, right? My family are not from the U.S. And so while being counted as, quote unquote, the African-American people, right, me and one other dude in the department, right, the way that the numbers game was sort of operating while this very U.S.-centered, right, in response to police brutality, violence and killing, um, Black Lives Matter movement was sort of increasing, right? I was I was sort of being cast as the person who would like, Quell, which was simultaneously co-opting that movement for the university, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so um, it was some hard lessons that I had to learn at the time, too, because you very much want to be like, you know, like Sojourner, like, ain't I a Black kind of thing? And then also recognize, <laughs> well, but also um, this is what the University of California, in terms of its, like, taxes and in terms of its, like, race, or race representation for African-American people, Black Californian people, Black people in California are different things. And we need to sort of be mindful, right? Be historically aware and be ready to understand what the university is trying to um, extract from you and co-opt you into. Wow, that's, I mean... One, thank you. <laughs> I've really received a lot. Um, so I want to start long there ass with like, yeah, <laughs> no, there, there, there's a lot of gratitude. We're a fan of a long ass sentence here. You open up some, some really powerful things that I think connect to like the larger meta theme that we're trying to talk through in this suite. One, making sure that everyone has the language to differentiate education and schooling Mm -hmm. and often that conversation that we have is like oh the school to prison pipeline like high school things or like third grade test scores we talk a lot i think about like k through 12 in that dynamic and don't discuss the university and academia as a continuation of that colonial project and also as a carceral space even if there's like privilege in that space um and so yeah your experience is really like opening that up for me but but i want to kind of even go back to the history of of reagan right Mm -hmm. like the significance of dissent and the significance of the repression of dissent in terms of where we are right now in our abolitionist project right because i think it's pretty easy to say like the police don't keep us safe Mm -hmm. uh but i think this summer has taught us very well they do know how to quell dissent right like they do know how to respond to mobilization and action and like enact repression Mm -hmm. and so that history that that this campaign is is refurbishing (laughs) uh, is really helpful of us understanding of like, no, that's not on accident. The state police system for the university was explicitly propagated as a response to black liberation. 
I'm really moved to hear you saying like, there never was a public university. This is the creation now, because as we say, abolition is the creation of new worlds, not just like the ending of old ones. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I want to go into like how folks are learning within the campaign. You know, how is the campaign itself a learning space, a space of education that is countering the school, that is creating uh, pockets or bubbles of fugitivity? Uh, what I'm seeing in in these examples of, you know, care not cops or cops at a CPS here in Chicago and hearing, you know, cops off campus is that abolition is a true pathway towards education and the expression of dissent is a space for knowledge building. Does that ring true in your experience? And if not, what are or how are folks learning and being like almost trained to go out in the world as like more dynamic, hopefully revolutionary spirits? That's a lot too, right? <laughs> right? You gave me a lot, I gave you, you a lot it. right back. That's what we do. Like, 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 we're, a, we're, like a ping pong match <laughs> of long sentences. It's perfect. Yeah. Let's um, do this. Okay, let's go. I got my semicolons ready. Um, <laughs> including the dashes. <laughs> when we think about the myriad ways in which you always know you're in trouble, I just like how many? Just say ways. I want to. Can I educate? Can I address whoever can hear this? Yeah, yeah. Public service announcement. You could say the ways in which, or you could just say the ways. Them's the ways. The ways that. The ways. Okay, that's it. That's my PSA. Okay, we don't need all that. And you better have a, if you're going to drop a myriad, there better be a myriad. There better be a literal <laughs> myriad. Three, Get, leave a myriad If you got several few. or a few or a couple okay? Yeah, we better be swimming in the mud. Just so many, just inundate me. Give me the myriad. <laughs> tired, tired of this. Um, by the way, let me just go ahead and make that note for myself for this thing I'm writing oh. tonight. Okay. This I say is, it and then you It sounds like fall. a joke that only the three of us would like, but I hope there's someone out there who likes that too. Well, there's someone out, I feel like instead of people liking the joke, they're going to feel um, called out as hell. And you are B, that is correct. Um, stop it. <laughs> the, the myriad defenders are coming out. <laughs> the myriad defenders. We can write that down. We're making t-shirts. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I, I hear what you're saying in terms of, you know, so abolition being new world building um, and not just the ends of the old one, right? Um, we also say that it's not an outcome, but a shared practice, a shared strategy, right? That's Ruthie, um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Dylan Rodriguez, um, the OGs of abolition study. Um, yeah, it's a great question. I want to answer the, um, the the practical thing in terms of, so I'm part of the Cops Off Campus Coalition um, and it is a coalition, right? But there's like a faculty wing of that. Also, faculties love wings. We do. Yeah, I was going to say contingent, and then I didn't want to play myself. So um, I tried at the last minute to swap it out. Still got called out, called in. That's okay. Called in. Called in. Called in. 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 I appreciate that. Generously. You fly with those wings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The UC faculty folks who are part of the Cops Off Campus um, Coalition were working with uh, student folks. Nobody's in a wing anymore. Um, Grad students and undergrads um, to produce um, multiple resources, right? Because the action that I want to talk to you all about that's happening on October 1st um, is also the first day of school for, I think, y'all too, the Courtship System. Because we're on, uh, y'all, you Chicago and people there who are on um, the Courtship System, right? So those groups, political education groups, um, prepared zines, slides, PowerPoints, information about what does it mean to do abolition study? what Why abolition of, the, of campus police and not just police in general? Like, why specifically mm-hmm. this site? Um, and so... 
We're hoping that those will be really useful. We sh- we sent them out to all faculty and all the campuses. They're on um, our Twitter use at UCFTP and and all the other socials, um, so that anyone can sort of take them up. But we really packaged it so that faculty, especially in this Zoom era, can just hit the slide and that's their slide, right? So if they have to teach class and the first day introductory, they can just say, it's this stuff, right? Like, here's mm-hmm. here's what it is. If you have questions, here's who you can also go to and maybe we can talk about it together. And it's that part that maybe we can discuss together that we're hoping will, you know, turn colleagues into comrades, right? Because the University of California we are actually made to represent the university, right? In the alleged system of horizontal governance, faculty are not allowed to have a union because we technically represent, we're up there with the with the, with the administration. Obviously, it's not real, right? It's also a way to sort of quell dissent. It's not defined in that, like, worker relationship. We are not workers, we're like managers. Class, yeah. mm. That's how they have mm. set us up, right? And so... Folks are looking into you, right? Because someone's saying, you can't have a union. That's why I'm going to get a union, right? Like, that's that's why I need that to say that that doesn't make any sense. Um, I might not have even wanted a union. But then when she said, I, I can't have, have one. one that, no, we absolutely. I, I mean, these are incredibly important. Um, you know, they, they can yeah, do absolutely. a lot of different things based on their membership. And this, you know, shout out to, to the graduate students who were fighting for a cost of living adjustment, which is also how our movement um Forms, right, the cost of living adjustment struggles by UC graduate students um, last um, academic year led to a series of wildcat strikes, which were alleg- allegedly, you know, that means strikes that are not sanctioned by the union. So we can see the different ways that unions themselves can be made to operate with or against um, certain. Um, Hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to trail off on that sentence only because yeah, that's fine. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's nuanced is my point. It's, 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 a, it's not to sort of like, right. It's not inherently a force for liberatory work. It can, it can be a, a dissension or a complacency building mechanism. Right. As well. And so, you know, the faculty being also significantly a part of the bourgeoisie doesn't mean, you know, you give us a union, then all of a sudden is this like leftist force for good. Exactly right. right. And so, but, right. but we should have a union. That's something. Um, so back to the question, though, about it being a space for teaching and learning. You know, we have these weekly calls with faculty, other, you know, smaller subgroups with student workers, folks in um, in the community, especially towards the 10-1 actions. But you know, our campaign is also stated clearly, right? Cops off campus by September 2021. So we have given ourselves a year-long escalation plan to figure out how to get that done. And so we're learning on the fly in a lot of ways. Um, But like any sort of movement work, we're also learning how to be in relation to one another. How do we organize with people that we've never seen in the flesh, right? Like some of these people on these calls not that I'm calling people the feds, right? But you can, you're necessarily just suspicious in movement and you should be, right? Anyone who's doing actual organizing work can just be like, come on, come on, here's all of our material and all of our information. But how do you sort of feel one another out, move at the speed of trust, as Adrian Marie Brown has said in her work on emergent strategy? How do we sort of be together, move together, and sort of trust that we can get this work done? I don't feel especially connected when we're just being mediated consistently, right? In two dimensions, it's like building a world of three and four dimensions, right? Envisioning a new world from a two-dimensional space, right? So in this way, um, we've had to sort of create different spaces of learning and create different digital spaces for us to figure out how to be connected and, and build trust to continue our movement. 
Yeah, I mean, look, if someone's trying to infiltrate, a Zoom call seems like prime territory for for an infiltration, <laughs> you know? Like you just camera off, pop up in the background. Do you? Oh, little... we definitely don't allow that. Uh, definitely, everyone has to. If people come on the call late, we'll all pause and we will make sure everyone is identified and identifiable. Also, as faculty, we just you know look y'all up, you know. So that's also the thing. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah. doesn't mean that there are not faculty who are fans, and that's a separate conversation. Um, <laughs> I also want to say that that Zoom is also literally the feds, right? Like the way that Zoom is operated. <laughs> right. If we're that's you know calls on Zoom platforms that are. Um, uh, university operated, right? The university owns that property and can technically has the power um, to just pop in on our calls at any time if we use university Zooms, which we do not. Um, so it also is trying to figure out ways to strategize uh, with the with the tools that we are given, even as there are tools of the state and indeed white supremacy. Building off of that a little bit and moving, I, I want to go outside the academy to then go back in. Yes, leave it, please. Um, I would imagine whether it's in, in your scholarship or in some of the, the co-conspirators that you're working with, that y'all have in various ways studied liberation movement and abolition movement as part of your as part of your study and your scholarship. So I'm curious, are there examples from outside of academic institutions? Are there specific benchmarks or examples that y'all are looking to as like, if not replicate, at least to learn from that, that, you know, have happened historically or on the global context uh, that you're saying like, okay, the way they did this fight, we want to make sure that we bring this piece into ours as well. Um, great question. Hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Good work. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's making me think. I don't, cause I don't know that we have said it, you know, super explicitly as a part of our, um, sort of collective. That is work we actually still have yet to do, I think. However, um, a lot of us come with transnational experience and expertise, right? Like, um, yeah. another way that I've come into organizing that made me susceptible to university organizing was previous work around migrant and detention centers um, in the UK, specifically the Yarlswood Women's Detention Center in London, um, and working with people, you know, groups like Sisters Uncut and these different kinds of spaces around women, the prison industrial complex, carceral cultures, patriarchal cultures, white supremacy, etc. And there are a lot of people um, who are organizing in our group who who also bring that kind of energy. And so we're also branching out with this one group in Colombia called Red Comunitaria Trans, um, which is a group of trans abolitionist feminists um, in Colombia. We've actually worked to organize transnationally. We're figuring out how to do that for the 10-1 action um, and in the future, figure out how to sort of organize and like have like simultaneous protests together, right? Protesting the killing of trans people, trans women in Colombia, uh, uh, protesting um, police violence and campus policing in California. Those are some of the things that we're doing, but that's not quite your question, right? I, as I'm hearing it, but view view it more as a prompt than a than a specific. And it's and I mean, you saying that it's that's work that it hasn't yet been done. I think is definitely an answer to that question. And I know these things happen organically and emerge. Um, but I am curious about your scholarship, uh, both in relation to this fight, um, but just in general. You mentioned your work specifically around that detention facility in the UK. And I know a lot of your work has been uh, around the Mediterranean as a site of violence mm-hmm. and carcerality. One, just, I'm not going to ask you to, you know, give the the whole dissertation right now, but it is just <laughs> something that I'm very curious in. I have a interest in um, 
like Italian politics and around oh. um, around immigration and detention and what what's been going on there. And and so I'm curious, what are people always like amazed to find out when you say like, oh, this is what I've been learning about, and they go like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then also, it's fine if there isn't. I'm kind of trying to put two things together. Mm-hmm. But are there things you're learning from uh, the work that's happening there? around you know fugitive space within carceral structures that even if it's not for the academy just coming back to this moment in the united states feels particularly relevant or germane and i know that's super broad i just uh i I never know how to ask people who have gone really in depth on a subject how Mm -hmm. to talk about it because i don't want to just be like tell me all about it um i'll tell you all about it i'll tell you right now Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm gonna, so what I'm, I'm gonna do something similar, I think. I'm gonna like take it, take it up top, and then we're just gonna whistle it down a little bit. The first thing that I can answer, um, is twofold, because the answer is, um, Black studies. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, what do I think that, like, the, the bridge between the two, and for me, it's Black studies, right? And now I'm gonna throw it back to y'all and your episode, in case you wanna drop his little voice in here. Hi, Robin, uh-huh. which is on an episode of, of your show. Robin said that Black studies is a response, product, and anticipation of our times, right? And so for me, that is it. Right. So on the Cops Off Campus campaign side, it's the response. On the Black Med side, it's the product. What I'm writing through is the anticipation. What does this mean? What's coming next? And where are we going to go from here? Right. What What are the terms and terrain and conditions of possibility for our struggle? That for me is how I would connect those two. What I tell people when I'm working on the thing that I'm used to experiencing um, is, oh, wow, you speak Italian? And the answer is yes, that in several other languages, Black people are very impressive. And so uh, <laughs> that, that is just, um, <clears throat> that, that is like on this most superficial, right? I say things like, yeah, I'm really like thinking about how to envision different, like extra national, like beyond the nation state formation and a way of thinking beyond racial capitalism, beyond citizenship, beyond the current constrictive white supremacist terms of our ability to relate to one another. Here's my project. Here are my stakes. Black people are dying in the sea. And they go like, wow. So you, so you like speak oh, Italian? Italiano. I was like, ah. <laughs> and like, I feel, I feel like we're, I feel like you missed because I was saying the stakes are like really dire. <laughs> Ciao. You know? And so that, that's, you know, that, that it happens, but it also, um, for me, directly connects to why we don't need nations and borders, like on that same level, right? Which again, I think we all agree is like a superficial one, but I'm an academic, what you're going to do? I'm going to make it deep, which is to say that the same way that someone could look at me and are like, oh, you speak another language, especially this one, completely overlooks the fact that, for example, Black people, African people, people of African descent on the literal continent of Africa speak more languages than anyone anywhere else in the world. Why are you surprised that I can say pizza? What? Mm. Or that's that's a bad example, but you feel me, right? Like, why? <laughs> no, you can say la pizza. La pizza. Eh? <laughs> there you go. You gotta be- <laughs> with that definite article make this shit real exactly that's how you know i mean it Uh, (laughs) it's for me just you know it's like mind-boggling but it also goes to show in terms of the work that i do and where i do it that paul gilroy and i think in black atlantic talked about in a sub-definition of racism being like it's the ability talking about the uh, the british context the ability to keep black people 
um, ever in the present. So Black people just arrived. Mm. We've always been in a consistent state of arrival. <laughs> Dion Brand has told us this, always arriving, never belonging to a place, right? And so mm. for me, that 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 goes, right? The, oh, you speak, that's so new. Uh, well, actually, read the book. I don't have a book yet. I'm, I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> shout out to the publisher. I'm working on it. Read um, the future book. That's know. how in the future you need to be right now. You got to get on my level. Get to 2025. That book is out. It's thriving. Um, but, you know, when when we're talking about, like, the conditions of 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 possibility for us to belong in relation to one another. It has to sort of break through and break down things like linear time, which is Western and white supremacist time. I'm happy to go more into that, but I don't think you want me in those weeds. But, you know, really, it's easy to say that (laughs) Black people have lived in and on whatever we're calling Italy for time. So the fact is, though, Mm -hmm. what Paul Gilroy was talking about in the British context was related to Black British people, right? Black people in Britain being like, oh, you must have just come here instead of being three, four, five generations deep. Um, He was talking about that as different from the African-American experience, for example, when because of the history of enslavement, Black people in America, no one's going to be like, well, go back where you came from. I mean, they can try, but like, where are you going to, where are they going to go? Like, I want to. They said it. They'll throw it from time to time. (laughs) Oh, no, I mean, they they drop it out, but then it's like, are you going to pay for, like, are you going to pay for the racist ancestry.com? Like, where where are we going, buddy? Like, where are you paying for the flight? (laughs) What are you, where are you trying to, and also, obviously, you're you're absolutely right. I I sit corrected because also that is like the advent of Liberia, right? It's just like, go back where you came from and let's, settle a place for you to go do that at. That's absolutely Mm -hmm. true. But it takes on like a different veneer when Mm -hmm. in places like Britain or places like, I don't know, Scandinavia, you know, you know, it's like maybe one or two generations in. Right. And so Gilbert's talking about that. And it was voluntary. Right. Right. So it's not that we brought you here. You are expressing some agency with your presence. And that is a, a disruption in some type of way. Yes, that is the argument. And I hope we all understand that there is not the same kind of agency, right? British campaigns in the 80s across mm-hmm. Europe between Black and brown peoples have this had this campaign that said, uh, we are here because you were there, right? So what agency in the wake of uh, colonial occupation, right? You took all the resources. I'm going right, back to exactly. where you stole that at. I would like, I'd yeah. like some of it, right? <laughs> like to feed my family and people. Again, Gilroy is talking about the UK, but the 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 difference in the site of the Mediterranean, including places like Italy, France, Greece, Spain, etc., um, and and Tunisia or Tunisia, you know, the Mediterranean, um, <laughs> is also such that Black people have been rendered totally absent from its histories, especially in the northern side of the mm-hmm. Medi- the European side of the Mediterranean, yeah. so that Black people equal the migrants that are coming from North and Sub-Saharan Africa and drowning at sea, as opposed to recognizing that due to phenomena like Italian colonialism and occupation, French, Spain, etc., the relationship between the European Mediterranean and the African Mediterranean is one and the same. And the only reason that they are bifurcated or thought of as distinct is due to racial capitalism, colonialism, the usual suspects. And like you said before, there were Black people in what is now Italy before there was Italy for hundreds and yeah. hundreds of years. Absolutely. Both geographically and, and historically, like in the telling of that particular like geographic area, like these, it's it's not it's not just arriving the way that you just. Yeah. I, geog- I like how you said that geographically, historically, and also, you know, like, so Rome, right? The Holy Roman Empire, that was shifting. So whatever we're calling Rome shifted month to month. 
So you mean to say now that that same region, once it gets codified in relation to nations, becomes no Blacks were ever here. That is just demonstrably false and untrue. There's that great Hari Kondabolu joke where he goes, uh, you know, the phrase one in Rome is wrong. You didn't go to Rome. Rome came to you. Right. That's exactly right. That's right. <laughs> oh, shit, I'm in Rome now. <laughs> that's right. So, so I'm just over here just 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 swimming in meta themes. Like I'm just like basking and, and showering and all of the, the the just the connections that you're bringing, uh, and and I'm, I'm trying to continue to like express my gratitude without being redundant on it, <laughs> because what I'm feeling is th- is this conversation of of migration and the critique of the nation state, particularly through these militarized borders, um, is so deeply connected, although it may not be obvious, to this conversation of carcerality and education, uh, and therefore like liberation and freedom. Because as I study the history of the diaspora. Um, I think one of the ways you can define freedom uh, is in being able to place oneself, right? Being able to to stay, you know, to, to have ancestral connections to land and then being able to move and to have mobility um, that is not inhibited or prohibited by these militarized structures or any structure. And as I, you know, as I've had that idea or that claim connecting it back to this conversation, it has been that mobility and that placement where our indigenous forms and sciences of knowledge came from right that that is one of the greatest injuries or the disruption is one like right like we have the learning tree and like we have the space where village like comes around through generation or we move through the world and the world in the way is our classroom or or our 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 space for knowledge building and and that the border itself is like a I, I, I'm I'm running out of metaphor, but <laughs> you know it, it, it's it's like well, you the, wasted you know, them all on basking and swimming. You know you got to yeah. <laughs> but but you know the, the border is is you know I think like the claim we make about the school wall or or about the the metal detector or about the SRO right like the the border is this disruption of our ability to to connect to our our knowledge um, in, a, in, a, in a true liberatory fashion. Um, mm-hmm. What you have articulated so well is that our liberation is global. And as someone who has a generational history in the U.S., I feel so disconnected from that global perspective. Um, and so just hearing you talk about like multiple language or like the abolition of citizenship, I'm getting to there intellectually, but that's so far from like my lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um that I, that I'm like seeking a deeper knowledge that I that I hear you speaking towards in terms of where we need to go in this fight against colonial militarism. Yeah, that made total sense. I'm vibing with everything that you're saying, and then okay, I'm gonna cool. gently <laughs> use that vibe to disagree with Do you 100. percent So, ooh, okay. Because so one thing, the thing that you were saying before, um, I, I appreciate that was super generative for me because what you're saying is what I believe and what I'm also it's like the argument of a lot of my work, right? The border is what I'm hearing you say is violence, right? It's not just a wall or a mm-hmm. barrier. These other metaphors, yes, but it, it is it is also violence. It is. I mean, you know, we've had untold histories of like black feminism, black people, Latina feminism, Chicano feminism, etc. Indigenous feminism tell us this, how we construe, iterate and capitulate to borders and the border writ large is a side of untold violence and differentiation. Right. And also the way that you talked about freedom. When I'm talking to my students, I talk about the the different iterations of of freedom not because I, I you know I, I trick I trick them a little bit I, I get them right I'm like what does freedom mean to you and then we go around we say different things and that's all good that's all great right but it's like 
the sentence structure, and you know, I, my one of my first degrees was in like linguistics and semiotics, so I am insufferable about mm. like prepositions. So it's like when they're like, "Freedom means Ooh. this," or "Freedom is when," <clears throat> dope. Freedom is an action. That's awesome. But I also like the different prepositional possibilities, right? Because there is freedom to, freedom to do something, to be something, to go somewhere or somewhere, right? But there's freedom from, there's freedom with, mm-hmm. right? And so there are these different kinds of iterations of freedom that I love to think, for me, thinking um, through an abolitionist um, frame, abolitionist strategies and visions needs to hold those things sometimes in tension, right? Because if you are engaging in freedom from these structures, right, that's the old world we're talking about that abolition seeks to sort of dismantle, abolish. Um, but also, as we already were saying, like freedom to, freedom to imagine, to inhabit. But there's that freedom with point in terms of who are we, could could be who are we in relation to and how do we make that possible? Mm-hmm. I, I love all of those things that you were saying. The last point about, and I was like kidding because it's your experience. I'm not fully going to disagree with it. But the, the part that you said that I'm like, mm, I don't know, let's think about this, is something that I experienced from, like I hear from Black Americans, people with generation experience in the U.S., all the time in terms of like, oh, well, I didn't have, like, I didn't have the languages or I didn't have the this. And I've been like, these things were sort of lost. That is incredibly true um, and a tragedy, but it's also, um, we deal in narratives too, right? Abolitionist vision requires narration and imagination together. And if we imagine it in relation to loss, so we sort of like honored that loss in, 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 myriad ways, uh, in multiple ways, right? Then I think something great can happen and has happened in various internationalist movements over generations, right? Instead of like, mm-hmm. we didn't have access to this. We can all le- train up, right? We can all learn some languages. I don't, I'm, you know, what does it mean to be Italian is literally what I'm writing about, but I am not that, right? So <laughs> but can, we can learn it, right? Yeah. We can we can study and train up and honor oh, yeah. ourselves. I'm also and have... lazy. That's a totally oh, different. Oh, never mind. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no. But so totally uh, okay. So we're gonna put a pin in that. Um, so we're not learning languages. Joking, that's I'm off joking. the list. But the thing that you were really talking about that I that I really wanted mm. to to say that struck me is you were talking about how I, I'm bringing in the global and you don't have that same exp- in relation to the citizenship and I, like you don't have as a generate with generational experience in the U.S. that implicit knowledge and i strongly disagree look at y'all's government look at look at look at it (laughs) like look at what is happening today black people have never been citizens in this country that's the gag right the gag is Mm -hmm. black people have Mm -hmm. never had the same amount of rights black people are not the same humans black people were different fractions of a person and still not people right consistently dehumanized violated diminished, right? Three-fifths of a four-fifths of a five-fifths. It literally does not matter. The The way uh, that citizenship has been constructed still consistently, obviously, reopposes the nation state because that's who's authorizing you to be a citizen and claiming that you have rights. And Black mm-hmm. people, while in that project in the U.S., still don't get no rights. What are you talking about? You know, that's... I'm clearly shouting at someone else. Uh, but, you know, like, it's 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 a frustrating fact. Well, they might be listening. I hope so. Yeah. I'm a... I'm just, <laughs> so listen, just like... I know. Okay. <laughs> I'm okay. gonna go to my Berta account. I just like put that in the inbox. It's for you. Um, <laughs> must listen. Minute twelve. Uh, but you know, uh, for me, so it's, I'm really passionate about it. Right. I'm, I'm passionate about it, especially as we are like five weeks from an election, and the question of democracy is at hand. And you know. One, darling, Angela Y. Davis wrote about abolition democracy and how to sort of hold those things in tension. Um, That's not always the abolition that I ascribe to in terms of my abolition feminism, which 
I'm not I'm not gonna be harmful and say much more about, but please have me back after November so I can tell you. Um but you know, we we know it to be true. And then so black people in the US are often intelligent and hyper aware of the condition and the structures, right? But then also engage then in this toxic relationship that is based on bad faith. This is regardless of what you think about voting, regardless of what you think about democracy, right? That that I feel like can be proven to be true, right? The, the same, the eye-rolling people of like, I'll never vote. And the people who are like, we got to vote our way through. Both of those people are like, but we're aware that the system is flawed, right? What is citizenship actually afford one? Rights, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What is it? Something, something liberty and the pursuit of happiness, yeah. uh, right? But what does that say for the actual current conditions of the exponential rates of Black death if not at the hands of police or vigilantes, then because of other industrial complexes in which race plays the over-determining factor, right? If it's not at the hands of police, it's because you went to a doctor that didn't believe you had pain, right? It's because you're a Black mom and you don't, you're not allowed to advocate for yourself while giving birth, dying at just like exponential rates just because you're Black and a woman at a certain hospital, Right. It's because you went to school and you're you're up there trying to learn and try to do your ABCs on walls of asbestos in 2020. Right. It's because you were thirsty and you were just playing hopscotch outside. You came in for a glass of water, but you're in Flint, Michigan. And what does that mean? What did citizenship give any of those people? What is it actually what has it done for us lately (laughs) is really what I want to say. And so in that way, the connection between the lived experience of Black people in the U.S. as Black Americans included, um, as what I am talking about in terms of there are Black Italians, right, who there's not even that stage, right, because there is the difference between use soli and use sanguinis, which is effectively like law of the earth Mm -hmm. and then law of the blood, right? And so use soli is like you're born in the U.S., you're an American citizen, use sanguinis, like Italy and other places, you're born there, you can apply for citizenship, and that's a maybe, Right. So black, it's black people born in Italy. One of the things that is done, and this is no shade to the organizers who I like organize with to struggle for these same things as I'm also trying to get us something larger, the sort of like double down retrenchment in terms of saying things like, anch'io sono l'Italia. I am also Italy. Right. And I'm like, dope. Okay. But what all does that mean? What does that actually materially give us? And if we're actually orienting is my argument, to the state and saying, I'm also Italy. There are people that have come up on the sea, washed up on shore after making it untold distances through untold traumas on things that can be barely described as boats, who will never be citizens, right? They were not born and raised. So what is it that we're actually doubling down on and retrenching ourselves into? And I think Black Americans, Black people across the diaspora and on the continent can share in this understanding. Does that make sense? Mm. Man, there were so many semicolons in there. I think I've won this round. Absolutely. No, I'm <laughs> So what, I, what I'm hearing is that the, the like, I too am nation state, if you shift that to an I too am in conversation, in relation, in lineage with this uh, wider, with, with diaspora, like there's a, a potentiality in there that's far greater and potentially more liberatory. Yeah, I mean, I, so... Diaspora, that, you know, that's how I would say, <laughs> how, how I would locate myself. But I also, it's tricky, right? You don't want to, you know, some people are like, I'm of diaspora. And then they're also of wealth, <laughs> right? They're, which is like a, 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 a trifling way to sort of mask um, positional difference. 
The second issue with that, mm-hmm. though, is the whole continent of Africa, which is not the diaspora, it's the place, right? And so then, right. so if you're of diaspora, then it's like all y'all, then Africa. And that's also not a, bif- you know, I don't want any sorts of binaries in relation to that either. But I do think about, you know, Blackness, which is, again, especially, you know, places like the continent and elsewhere, it's a, it's a fraught term. It's a, it's a porous term and it's a capacious space, which also... I'm like imagining a cell because I saw the magic school bus yesterday for, for research. And, uh, <laughs> and so, Professor Frizzle, thank we you understand. So much. So, uh, <laughs> the, the real Professor Frizzle is one Eve L. Ewing, though. I think we all know that. I think, <laughs> I think we all know that to be true. Yes, uh, <laughs> no question. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, so if you're thinking of like the cell or the mitochondrion or whatever, like sometimes things are so porous that, you know, harmful things come in. All that is really, you know, it's a fancy way of saying, oh, I don't really have the, I'm still, basically I'm writing my way through because I don't want to land on something. It's not just diaspora, but I'm damn sure that it is not the nation. It is not citizenship because it has never been. And so why would we need to rehabilitate something when everything else is, for me in California, literally on fire? You know, we're too busy for that. We, let's just let's try something else. Because the thing that has existed from 1776 in, in, on this land, on Turtle Island, um, has not served us. So let's, you know, get together and figure out, first of all, who the us is, who we be, um, Gwendolyn Brooks and June Jordan, and get struggling. I don't know, like find our way out together on new terms and in a new terrain. Mm. To come back to like the school as a site mm-hmm. um, and how this is all connected, right? Like even beyond our big like multi-central claim of like school itself is a colonizing structure um, for people who are just like talking about school systems, high schools, elementary schools, college and universities. We in our system have these horrible disparities in, in resources and outcome and spaces within singular school systems, but definitely all of the systems that we have in the United States. And I'm sure exist similarly in other places. And the idea of your school zone is different from mine is the same idea of the border, right? Your citizenship is different from mine. You know, in Chicago, people are familiar with like the Oak Park divide of this is now a different place. And then school itself has this notion of differentiation. You know, there's grade, there's, yeah. So I'm getting kind of lost in all different, different things. Tra- you know, AP classes, honors classes also in that. We, there's, yeah. Too. Like you can be physically in the same space and different, you know, educational spaces and different imagined outcomes also. And this is nation state in the microcosm. That is exactly right. That's mm-hmm. exactly right. And that's what I was talking about, um, like Prop 2 and I and affirmative action in California, right? How they try to make the, mm-hmm. the, the what, and also what we know nationwide, how Black immigrants tend to fare slightly better than Black Americans, reinforcing stereotypes about Black American people. But it's about the, the nation and what the nation has done to its own, quote unquote, citizens. Could you unpack that dynamic a little bit more, actually? Uh, I haven't heard anyone really speak about that before. Oh, boy. I see it. I understand, you know, uh, having family from the Caribbean, Central America, etc. When you speak and say an idea... It beca- you know, it's like a, a spicy black, if you can, right? It becomes like <laughs> somehow much more erudite or, or it's, oh, it's, oh, that's such a, po- oh, that's such a posh thing that you've said. Oh, that's so, oh, you talk like this lovely. I don't, I don't speak that way. That's not how I try to show up in space. What people are doing when they do that is actually racist. It's white supremacist, really, because what it's doing. Well, it's like the British. It's, yeah, the imaginary of what like proper English, there's a queen and there's tea time culture, mm-hmm. etc. 
right? And so that that doesn't involve Black people. The way that it involved Black people actually is the same way it involved Black people during the transatlantic slave trade on Turtle Island in North America. That's where Black people were around in that in the same era of the Queen's English posh time that people are, are conjuring up. And so it's like mapping the violence, you know, through dialect and through acculturation on the body and simultaneously attaching that Black person, like a Black British person, Black Caribbean person, Black African Right, um, like a Nigerian person, or I'm thinking of people, you know, with with colonial um, entanglements with the UK, for example. Um, it it coercively remaps, reinscribes those people in relation to an imperial force, and then it becomes not the black person, but the imperial force meeting an imperial force, right? Even if that's not what the person just talking to in a bar is up to, that's an effect. I believe was what's happening, right? It's the America you know, you know, former Britain and then Britain, right? It, talking to each <laughs> other on the body of a literal Black person, like forged in the mm-hmm. wake of that imperial violence and context. And so I'm aware of that's mm-hmm. what's happening and I won't be in service of it, um, but it's something that I witness all the time, right? Where it's just like, to so the undermining of uh, the Black American, quote unquote, citizen or citizen subject, and that that is what is at, at play. Because the goal is still fundamentally to, as y'all are saying, parse out, produce a border, and subjugate, completely oppress and dispossess Black American people. All the more reason we need an international framework or an internationalist framework, right? It's all the more reason why we need to talk about, just to selfishly bring it back to my own stuff, the Black Mediterranean. It's not just about citizenship in that region. What I love to talk about, what I talk to about my students, or I organized a conference um, last year when people were doing that in person, talking about the transatlantic slave trade. I'm, you know, currently uh, in a department of African-American studies at UCLA, right? And so what I've learned talking to people and talking to students more than just the, oh, you speak Italian, is, oh, but what does that have to do, I guess, with African-American studies, right? You know, first of all, I think it should be called Black Studies. That's my own thing. Um, We're having struggles about that now that I think um, I wish would be just robust and generative. Shout out to Robin Kelly for for leading the charge um, in a a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, the transatlantic slave trade is what is what I want to know from people, right? Because when we say, like, African-Americans... Uh, Africa and the diaspora, that's not what that word means, right? Diaspora, there's Africa, and then there's who all left by various means. So, but I don't know if you've heard this configuration. I have a lot of the time, right? It's like Black America, the diaspora, and Africa. That's a triangulation that is uh, not just inaccurate, but also oppressive. When I talk about the Black Mediterranean, it's interesting to me that that is left out of a conversation of the transatlantic slave trade because where all those ships come from, fam? Those same ships, right? They went not just to North America and the Caribbean, but literally one of the things I love to tell Italian people about in their own language, just to shame them, um, is also about, because Italians don't believe that they were a part of the colonial project. That is false. See several books. But no, they, they also just got they also just got their ass kicked which yeah. is a, as part of that colonial. And project. so they don't like to talk about it, right? But so uh-huh, uh-huh. you was out there at all. <laughs> just took a hard L. <laughs> They're kinda right. Um or they, you know, what is it? It's a um technicality, right? Because Italy as such, when it was founded as a nation state, what missed the boat of the scramble for Africa. But what does that mean? It means merchants of Venice. 
the, you know, the one from Shakespeare, merchants from Murano, mm. merchants from Milan, merchants from other places, city-states in what is now Italy, sold beads, sold money, like sold uh, wares to Britain, to France and their empires to partake in the scramble for Africa. That's why those places are some of the wealthiest places today. So that kind of cop out of like Italy, as Italy was not a part of the scramble for Africa, is also the same way that people are trying to bifurcate African-America and African-Americans from diaspora, from a real possibility of Black internationalism, are producing these ide- like ideologically bound borders and, and sort of like preventing us from understanding that the side of the Black Mediterranean, which if we just look at a map themselves racist, it's a tricky thing, goes into the Atlantic, which is part of the transatlantic slave trade, right? These seeds are not, there's not a wall that's like, this is no longer the Atlantic. This is a whole other story. It's the same story. And keeping them separate is also harming us in terms of like really envisioning sites and futures of possibility in relation to one another away from things like citizenship, away from nation state formations and other white supremacist modes of power. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> Absolutely. Also, Italy has uh, kind of a little, little thing called the Vatican in it. It did some 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 looting, <laughs> some um, imperial just, something. If we're gonna skip have you been to? You, sounds like you've been to Italy, right? Do you yeah. see those like obelisks yeah. that straight out are from Ethiopia? Like, mm-hmm. get get out of here! Oh yeah, y'all, yeah, y'all didn't go. Yeah. No, you didn't go nowhere. You didn't. You didn't. Uh, <laughs> I just, I'm sorry. There's nothing like in, in storage in the yeah, basement. I mean, in the basement, fam. You go to Rome. That's it's tall as hell. You're yeah. just like, but where, where'd you get that at? Yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> like, wait, uh-huh. you, you weren't uh-huh. making these. It's set, it's it's written in Tigrinya on the bottom of the base. Y'all don't speak that, you know. Like, it's so <laughs> obvious, um, yeah. and it's frustrating. But clearly, I just enjoy. I get um, really frustrated about it, and then I'm like, okay, this is the side of work and struggle. And so, what I've been doing in the later parts of work, and also through my poetry and things like that, is like trying to practice what I what I <laughs> preach or rant, you know, in terms of let me divest from just what I rant is great. Let me divest yeah. from like trying to convince Italians, whatever I think Italians are, into this project, but rather let me try to see what it would mean to u- usher in a space of otherwise black possibility. And I and I got that in large part yeah. from reading um Sean Carley's work, a dear friend and a brilliant writer, when he talks about um the otherwise and aesthetics of otherwise possibility. Like we can we can we can inhabit that. We can produce that together. And we don't even necessarily need a blueprint. We don't actually need um, a prior map because it hasn't been done before. Beautiful. Dame, do you have any less? I, I'm being a little mindful of time. Yeah. For sure. This is the most, I think, concise question I, I have. What, what I've gathered from this conversation is we need to lean into a learning that is centered in like a diasporic internationalism. Is that a, a fair takeaway? Does that sound accurate? Come, come through, takeaway. No, I, I, okay. I love it. Um, yeah. I, I've, I've heard you make the clarification. I just heard it. Full, is that diaspora is not then the appropriate term for folks still in the place. Diaspora means folks of the place somewhere else? Yeah. Yeah. So the word was initially, right. okay. I don't, well, I'm going to do etymology. Etymology, see what I'm trying to say. But it, come, it was mostly for Jewish people. Diaspora was about the exodus of Jews. And then the word expanded okay. over the last several generations and means, yeah, not of the place. So um, the second you leave uh, Chicago, you're a Chicago diasporan. Okay, so thanks for that. Because yeah. I, I, I've definitely, I've, I've expanded the word too much. We also had a great opportunity there to play our etymology sound effect. So for those <laughs> listening in post, shout out. Oh wait, you, is that, that true? Do you really it. have one? Etymology, see what I'm trying to say. 
Oh man! Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. oh yeah, yeah, yeah! No, you found the place to be. I am so excited. This was Welcome so home. great. Y'all were nervous. I was fine. This was this was great. I lo- I can't I can't wait to hear that. And I'm gonna. It's my ringtone. I stay doing that to people. I'm just like, well, I almost did that with knowledge earlier. I was like, well, knowledge. If you think about it, it's from the Welsh. Oh, okay, uh-huh. this is great. You you don't even yeah. know. We will play that. Yeah, I have the etymology app. Do you have the etymology app? I am the etymo. No, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so so leading into a learning that is you know that that centers internationalism and also diasporic internationalism. What is one or a few <laughs> ways we can incorporate that approach into like the practical learning that folks maybe beyond the the academy could do? So whether that's in school sites or you know elsewhere in organizing space and artistic cultural movement space what are ways we can step into that type of learning yeah uh man stereotype of myself whole professor and writer and all the stuff i gotta say read a book and i'm so i feel so <laughs> bad it's like obviously sure. there's other ways to learn i believe it with my from my, in my spirit <laughs> um but i also think um we just need to read a book, specifically more books on imperialism. When we're talking about, you know, the relationship between like Black Americans, Black people more broadly in the diaspora, Black people in the Mediterranean, people from Africa, African people, I think that it becomes a retrenchment, you know, and it becomes like a culture war, right? Which like we're doing the Joe Lawfuls all over again kind of thing. Whereas instead, <laughs> if we took a step back, like culture and acculturation is deeply important. But if we talked about the imperial histories, then, well, on the one side, like Black European people that I know won't, won't necessarily run talk about Black people as, as one-to-one with the U.S., Right, which Black Americans that I know rebuff. They're just like, uh, we don't, we don't even go here, and we have nowhere else to go. Kind of dynamic, right? Yeah. That's you know, we we need to understand it through the lens of understanding imperialism um, and all of its ills, right? So also to understand that the violence that America, the U.S. as an empire, exacts across the world, they, the testing ground is here for Black American people, for Indigenous people on Churchill Island, coercively put in relation to the U.S., um, for Latinx people, etc. right? And I think that kind of gets lost when it's like, well, you're American or you have these resources because you're the economy. Well, America has all that. Black people in the U.S. or who are American alleged citizens don't necessarily. We need a more nuanced understanding. That, so the read on the imperialism works for people orienting to, to think about um, relating to Black Americans or Black people in the U.S. because that's two different things but also um, would allow people to in the U.S. and on Turtle Island to sort of think about, well, what are the conditions that are binding me to this place? And if we think through uh, imperialism to sort of inform our internationalist framework, I really think that we'll be able to figure out who it is we're in struggle with and not have the re-entrenchment of the nation state um, sort of bind us and divide us. Beautiful. Sorry that I said read. <laughs> but, no, we're a fan of a book. Yeah. That's a, this, is a, this is a pro-reading Take podcast, a look. It's say. in a book. Imperialism. <laughs> is there a text that you, that you direct folks to? Yeah. Ooh, Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Yeah. I know that people probably mention Which, it every day. I'm packing my house up because I'm moving. Yes. Uh, the funniest and joke. I found your copy. That's <laughs> like the funniest joke about our relationship. <laughs> about four years ago, I lit up this book and he hasn't given it back. <laughs> so he's just undeveloping my library by, by, by hoarding. How my dad underdeveloped, copy. man. You really hate to see it. 
you really hate to see it. Oh. No, de- definitely. But shout this is out. a time of repair and return, so I have to give de- you the definitely book shout back. out. How Europe underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney is is a seminal text. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure so yeah. many people have referenced it before. Um, I also, I mean, look. I think we got to go back to Fanon. There is a difference, right? I mentioned earlier Angela's abolition democracy. That's a useful text. And she always has a strong eye in, in, in a critique of imperialism. But there's a difference between, you know, abolition, abolition democracy, abolition feminism, revolution, and resistance. And I think we all need to get clear on what those words mean in relation to each other and not produce, mm-hmm. while we're trying to resist, especially as Black people, people of African descent, the burden of representation. I want us to not then put all of that onto one term, right? Because abolition and revolution, Fanon would say, are actually not the same thing. And so mm-hmm. uh, the book that I'm using to prop up my mic, which is Fanon's uh, Alienation and Freedom, um, it's a pretty pretty light and casual text. Um, it's just here. Um, so I think... For those, for those at home, we're looking at like the 20,000 to 50,000 page. <laughs> Small exaggeration. but It that is thing, 809 uh, pages. Yeah, no, um, but I mean, you know, it's no Hogwarts, but we'll get in there. But he uses like really, really big font, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, because so the subtitle says "Down with Colonialism and Imperialism," and so even other, other, you know, other bangers from Fanon in terms of Wretched of the Earth, etc. Um, oh, and in that term, of, in the ideological baggage, I think like decolonization for sure goes in there, right? I cannot tell you how many times I'm in conversation. I'm glad to um, learn this radical new thing, um, which is um, muting your video on Zoom. Because I have a very expressive mm-hmm. face, and so when people are talking oh, about the viral, it comes. Well, in I just—it's not on purpose. I think I'm listening and being stoic, and then someone's like, "Well, we just need to decolonize the way that we, you know, do yoga or something." Or like, we need to actually—I—I I have a decolonial relationship to this sandwich. I don't—I just whatever. You know, Fanon would say, right, you cannot even decolonize the university, even though I'm like literally embedded in those struggles or we mobilize similar language without like, you know, violence, without revolution, without like we can we can transform it. We can do other things. But to decolonize it um, actually requires a different set of you know set of engagement. Right. We're not talking to the chancellor. We're asking to meet him outside. All right. Last question. You ready? It's a two parter because what else could it be on this show? We've gone around the world, across time, um, but in this moment, uh, in a very grounded way, and this is something that we're asking all of our guests in the suite, what the process of even schooling, uh, not to mention education, looks like for so many parents and families is so complicated and and is so arduous. Um, And so we're giving each of our guests in the suite the opportunity, uh, maybe not advice, but just is there anything that you want to say to parents who are in that moment right now of trying to figure out for their young person on a day-to-day basis, like how do you create space for learning? And then the second part of the question is, is there a teacher inside of school or out that you've had that you want to just give a shout out to? Oh, these are both such tender <laughs> questions. Um, I'm not a parent and I am just so sorry about what, what they have to <laughs> go through. My goodness. Um, just thinking about like, oh, read a book or do this kind of work when you're also keeping other things alive. Man, I killed, I killed a peace lily the other day. And if you look at a peace lily, it says Ooh. like resistance to neglect. And I said, hold my drink. <laughs> right. And I, and then I also yeah, yeah, held the yeah. drink from the peace lily. It dried out. That's the point. But anyway, 
actually what I would think about and what we can draw from, especially from um, non-Western traditions, you know, how we say it takes a village, but it literally does that. Um, It would be great if there were different kinds of ways for parents to sort of intentionally um, raise children together, especially in these times, right? I know some of the parents I know have been doing like quarantine pods so that their children can play together and still have like interaction. I think that the way forward cannot continue to be individualist. And so what I wish for parents is that they'd be able to sort of um, make sure to draw on people, especially non-parents. I mean, we're all going through it, right? So this is not to put, to, to pit folks against one another, but I, for one, I'm always super excited to to be um, in in children's lives, right? I like all my hobbies are either like super old people ones, like murder she wrote, knitting, but I also um, really like tiny children, not ones with like too many opinions because they're very shady and I'm very sensitive, mm-hmm. but like small enough where I'm like, let us be in a relation because what I'm learning from you is like how you're dynamic or watching you learn things for the first time. I- I'm like I'm witnessing that, and it's really a, a pleasure and an honor to be a witness, but. I also get to learn patience. I also get to model um, the principles that I are my organizing principles in terms of moving at the speed of trust, offering grace and discernment and the sorts of things that like allow me to think about slowing down while I'm organizing towards a future that some people might inhabit it a bit longer than I. Again, not advice. I just, just my deep just my deep sympathy and let me know what you need. <laughs> um, right. But uh, yeah, that if we can organize in a relation, because parenting is a lot like organizing in that way too, right. In terms of trying to, even if we're unfortunately treading water, trying to kind of make it, you know, day by day. Um, and so I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah. And also if you thought, if you thought getting the chancellor to do something was hard, wait till you try to get a toddler to do just something. Put on, <laughs> man, I, my sister one time, Talk about mobilization. For a, for a smooth 45 minutes, which is, you know, a rookie mistake on her part. And she didn't do that with the other kids. Tried to get my nephew to put on his shoes. And, you know, we all learned a lot that day. Um, namely, <laughs> that, that Brenda wasn't going to put on his shoes. Right? And so that I just know. think, yeah, the, I mean, I cannot imagine. Dude. I would just be like, well, this child is barefoot. Really, what are shoes? We need to sort of reorder the structure of conditions of the world that needs things on our feet. And I would tell that to CPS when they were like, why does my child have no shoes or clothes <laughs> instead, <laughs> instead, instead, of, exactly. instead of trying to argue? Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I hear that. And in terms of teachers, I also want to shout out to my nephews. I learn a lot from them in terms of, like I'm saying, like how they view the world. It's been really interesting um, and, and difficult sometimes to kind of figure out building and maintaining intimacy in two-dimensional space. Uh, but being being in diaspora and being away from them for for a long time, it's also um, the way we do it, right? Like people, like immigrants, we, we people understand what it is to like constantly be, you know, connecting on Skype and through phone, like Jamaican phone cards or something like this. And so, um, <laughs> uh, you know, you talk until the minutes run out, kind of thing. And so, um, yeah. But they also do teach me resolve. There's that kind of determination and internal resolve that. I've just learned a great deal from, and I think it's really central to um, the movements and how, how we're able to organize. And even if we're not, you know, like movement people, quote unquote, or organizers, in terms of how we not just get free, but like survive to the point that we can thrive and get out of these COVID times and, and move, you know, to something else. I think that kind of resolve and internal um, integrity is, is, can, can teach all of us something. Mm. Beautiful. How can um, folks find you and your work and the work of the campaign and the ways you want to be found? This will come out after the first. So 
we it's great that we talked about it, but it'll be after that initial campaign launch. How do I want to be found? <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, I'm a professor at UCLA for now, so you can look me up there. Um, my website is uh, S-A-S-M-Y-T-H-E, E-S-S-A-Y-S-M-Y-T-H-E dot com. And it's S-A Smythe on all the things. So Twitter and Twitter. <laughs> and so I was like, do I, like, I got an Instagram, but it's like me and cat photos. And do you need that? That's not, that's not relevant. Um, we might. <laughs> please. Needs a subjective. Yeah, that might. You two should definitely find me there. Um, I'm definitely, uh, yeah. Um, the Cops Off Campus campaign can be found at, at UCFTP on Twitter and Cops Off Campus on Facebook. And I think UC underscore FTP on Instagram. But basically, UC Cops Off Campus um, it's really about also continuing to build broad-based coalition, right? So it's some like nitty gritty work, getting down, like meeting people, figuring out what folks need. Because we mean different things by abolition before, as I said, but also different things by education, different things in terms of what we think the university must provide us. And so it really is about um, for the next few months, trying to figure that out while putting pressure um, on uh, the people who are content to maintain a structure of policing in relation to the university. Well, I'm excited to see how that pressure uh, evolves and unfolds. Yeah. Thank you so thank much. Y'all thank you so much. much. This was delightful. Yeah. Thank you. Just as we go, I just want to you know, offer you y- your gas or your flowers. I really appreciate <laughs> um, just how gracious you were in, in sharing all of your brilliance with us and also enchanting and very enjoyable. So, <laughs> thank you so uh, much. It was really a gift to, to, to have this time with you. I am I'm honored. Radio radio? So sorry. No, no, you're good. No, you're fine. I stepped on the flowers. Uh, we're at Ergo Radio. I'm Dama underscore AF. I'm at Ergo Kiss, and we'll be back on the line, continuing our education suite with the folks reshaping the culture of our classrooms and communities for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Education. education.